Welcome to Porter Wright's Antitrust Law Source. Good afternoon. This is Jay Levine, your host of Antitrust Law Source, and I'm joined here by one of my newest colleagues, Ryan Graham. Um, how you doing, Ryan? I'm doing well, Jay. Good afternoon. Um, now, Ryan has a somewhat of a unique um, background that's going to lend itself perfectly to what we're going to discuss today, which is uh, data security and the Third Circuit's, I don't want to say landmark, but important decision in the war- Wyndham Worldwide matter. But first, can you just give us a little bit about your background and history? Yeah, sure, Jay. So prior to joining Porter Wright, I worked as a government analyst, and specifically I looked at reporting dealing with the cyber threat to U.S. critical infrastructure. And so I worked closely with um, those units involved in uh, data breaches and other uh, cyber criminal activity. And so I did that for about six years prior to coming to Porter Wright. Four of those years, I attended law school at GW. And so while I was in law school, I also did some academic work in the field of data breach law, um, and that's what led me here. Excellent. And Ryan talks about working for the government. Which, which branch of the government was that? That was the FBI. Okay. I just figured we'd, we'd get that out there. Yes. So you're, you're somewhat familiar with hacks and you know the consequences. Yeah, absolutely. Now, again, just to be clear, I was looking at it more from a cyber threat perspective mm-hmm. than a technical perspective. Right. Um, there are those people in the Bureau who do forensic analysis and high-level analysis of malware. What I was more... Um, focused on were the actual actors, the people behind the keyboards, the trends um, of cyber threat activity, the trends um, of threats facing, uh, again, U.S. companies and U.S. critical infrastructure. Okay. Well, I think that that probably segues perfectly into you can't open up a newspaper these days without seeing who's been hacked, how bad the hack's been, and how many people have been affected. So every company obviously has to worry about it, and it's going to keep GCs up all night. But can you just outline for us a little bit, what are the consequences of a company being hacked? Well, I think, Jay, that you're exactly right. Um, One of the things that we used to tell uh, those CISOs and CEOs and other executives was when it comes to a data breach or a hack, it's never a question of if, it's just a question of when. And the issue, one of the many issues is that the consequences of a data breach are, are expanding. So traditionally, the way that companies would respond to a data breach is typically you'd go out and however many affected people, you'd go and you'd buy them credit monitoring services for a year and then you'd effectively be done with it. And you'd send out reporting and notifications of the data breach to those affected consumers. Um, well, lately, that issue, uh, those uh, challenges facing companies have begun expanding. Um, so one issue that we've seen is the rise of shareholder um, suits and shareholder derivative litigation. Effectively, when these companies are hit with a large-scale data breach, their stock prices drop. And mm-hmm. that's been shown. And there are conflicting viewpoints as to the cause and effect um, and the validity of these suits. But it's newly tested waters where um, both the... Uh, in the Wyndham case, the Wyndham directors were hit with a shareholder suit. And more recently, in the Target data breach, uh, the Target directors were hit with a, uh, with a shareholder suit that is uh, currently pending a special, the results uh, from a, well, the findings from a special litigation committee. Gotcha. Okay. So basically, your one attack you have to worry about is from your own shareholders. So basically said, because you didn't have the appropriate data security procedures, you've put our equity, our investment um, at risk. And lo and behold, our market cap lost, you know, 
billions because of your your lax governance. That's exactly right, Jay. So there's issues of stock price dropping. There's issues of lack of consumer confidence. And really what the shareholders are saying is that your decisions concerning data security cannot be rationally tied to any legitimate business purpose. They're that bad. And so it's a relatively relatively high threshold, but one that shareholders are are trying trying to get over. Okay. Okay. So that's... So that's one means of attack, or that's one area that that in-house counsel and outside counsel have to be worried about for their clients. Um, what about you know the government? Right. So when it comes to the government, again, traditionally in a data breach, um, you're going to kind of have two sets of uh, of criminal investigators knocking on your door. That's the the FBI, where obviously where I came from, and then there's the U.S. Secret Service where if you're talking about a large-scale criminal intrusion, there's going to be overlapping jurisdiction. And then if you're a publicly traded company, you may also get a, uh, get a nasty gram from the um, SEC concerning your disclosures um, of your risk, because obviously data security is seen um, increasingly as a business risk that must be disclosed, much like all of your other business risks in your public disclosures. And then, of course, you have the FTC. And the FTC is what we're going to be talking about today. And they primarily regulate the civil aspect. They're kind of the, um, the government watchdog to ensure that your data security is up to snuff. Um, so they regulate the company aspect where, again, your FBI and Secret Service are primarily interested in the criminal actors who are actually breaching um, the networks. Right. And it should be noted that in addition to these investigations, um, there are, you know, uh, a host in a network of state data breach notification laws that require, uh, depending on the circumstances, the breadth and depth of the breach, you to notify the individuals, notify sometimes the attorney general, so sometimes notify um, some other governmental agency about the breach and, um, and the like. And again, one of the one of the things that has been pleaded to Congress is that this is a this is a patchwork of regulations that don't necessarily, um, uh, you know, every state has their own particular uh, requirements for that notification, and at some point there really needs to be a nationwide breach notification statute, which has been raised and hasn't yet left committee, but. Um, I, I have seen talk in Washington um, where it, it, it is closer to a reality than it ever has been, but uh, let's see if it actually happens. Yeah, that's exactly right, Jay. I mean, it's everything, even um, the definition of PII, personally identifiable information, varies between the states. And so if you're trying to assess your legal liability stemming from a data breach, uh, it's becoming to be a, a mammoth activity, you know, just to uh, you know, assure yourself that you're covered in every state that you're doing business in. Right. Now, of course, the and perhaps the scariest of them all is the consumer class actions, the people who were affected by the data breach. And, you know, you got to worry about their cases, too. I mean, tell me a little bit about what, what has gone on there. Well, the big issue with consumer class actions today, um, and this is something that's been discussed on the Antitrust Law Source blog, is the issue of standing. Mm-hmm. And standing is effectively where the court looks at the plaintiff that comes before the court and says, what are you doing here? Um, which is to say that you need to have an injury in fact um, to meet 
the constitutional requirements to bring um, to bring a case in a federal court. And so, uh, to date, uh, one of the issues facing consumer class actions is that in a large-scale data breach, you can say that someone took your information, but someone taking your information doesn't necessarily constitute a harm. It's not like they're using um, or stealing your money. Um, you know, all they're doing is they're stealing your identity. And so, you can't point to um, what to date has been seen as a legally cognizable harm. But that's beginning to change. Um, so, for example, uh, in the Neiman Marcus case, which is in the Seventh Circuit, the Seventh Circuit found that the uh, speculative harm from these uh, cyber criminals stealing this, uh, this personally identifiable, identifiable information is sufficient to confer standing on the plaintiffs. So it's beginning to shift. Um, right. It's something where, you know, this used to be a pretty set um, a pretty set judgment in the eyes of courts that plaintiffs and consumer class actions don't have standing in these instances, and that and that does not appear to be the case anymore. Right. I, I think in the I know the person who wrote the uh, the blog on Neiman Marcus. Um, the, I think the decision there focused, and it's interesting. There were there were a couple arguments, and the Seventh Circuit had no patience for the argument that we paid more. Be, you know, for our products because we thought our information was being protected. They didn't really think much of that. But the problem was there, there was actual fraud that had gone on for some of the named class reps. And that's an actual harm. Now, the fact of the matter is just because they were made whole and given credit monitoring service and all that, that doesn't take away or in any way compensate them for the time and energy that they spent in rectifying their you know credit history and in and in basically getting back their their identity theft and that the court felt was at least a harm that is legally cognizable whether they can prove it or not and prove any any amount is left to be seen but it conferred standing now so far that's a little bit of a circuit split and we'll see if the supreme court ever takes it up but um, it, it does – it has breathed new life into a lot of consumer class actions and certainly given them a way to plead their complaints in ways that probably protected against motions to dismiss. OK. Well, with all that as a background, we now sort of turn to Wyndham, which um, it was not the only but certainly the most advanced um, – you know, challenge to the FTC authority. So, but before we get into kind of the the meat of that, let's set up the facts. What happened in Wyndham? Well, what happened in Wyndham is, and this is the Wyndham hotel, hotel chain and its subsidiaries that we're referring to. Um, there were basically separate data breaches um, in April of two thousand eight and March of two thousand nine. And then again later in 2009, um, cyber criminals effectively uh, hacked into Wyndham systems, their networks, and they actually used um, memory scraping malware, which uh, incidentally was the same type of malware that was used um, on the point of sale devices in the target data breach. So one of the things that you'll see is again, cyber criminals, much like any other criminal, they're going to take the path of least resistance, and if it works, they're going to use it over and over again. Um, but as a result of this, um, one of the claims that was made against Wyndham um, was that the, uh, the malware that was used to exfiltrate the uh, consumer credit card and personally identifiable information, identifiable information exfiltrated it in plain text. 
um, which is to say it was unencrypted. Now, those of us who follow data breach laws, encryption is more or less the one safe harbor that just about every law has in common, is that if the data is encrypted and uh, encrypted to a certain standard, it will not be considered a breach legally. And so here, um, the data that was uh, taken, stolen by the cyber criminals, was effectively in plain text, um, which means that you could have read it, I could have read it, anyone could have read it. Um, they also, uh, FTC also made the claim against Wyndham that Wyndham failed to have any sort of firewall around this sensitive data. So obviously firewalls um, are those mechanisms that we use to stop malicious internet protocol, IP addresses, um, known bad actors um, from accessing this data, and they didn't have any. It's not that it was misconfigured, but again, according to the FTC, that's the alleged complaint, is that there was no firewall um, around the sensitive data. Now, was did they have any firewalls? In other words... A company wants a firewall to protect itself from somebody just messing not messing with its own data, forgetting its customer data. But you don't want someone coming in and, you know, rerouting all of your payments and, you know, and, and did they protect their own or did, I mean, did they, was it just the Wild West? I believe so. Um, I believe that they did have um, corporate firewalls in place around their sensitive data, but there were or around the corporate data, uh-huh. but there was none around the customer's data, um, which was a big issue because obviously, like all companies, uh, the Wyndham makes the statements, you know, your data is important to us, we protect your data. And again, the allegations are that that isn't what happened here. Right. Okay. So, I mean, obviously that would make it worse. You're protecting your own data, but you're protecting mine. That's that's going to look a lot worse. Well, honestly, Jay, the idea of just not having a firewall around certain data is relatively unconscionable for anyone. Yeah. Um, but again, like I said, I can't speak for what Wyndham did. I can only say for what their claim, uh, right. claim against them is. Right. So, okay. So, I mean, look, the bigger the, bigger the company, the, you know, the more likely you're a target of one of these data breaches. I mean, you know, that's where the treasure trove is, right? Yes and no. Um, One of the things that we actually used to see a lot of is that cyber threat actors are targeting a lot of small and medium-sized businesses. And Mm. the reason for that is because if you look at your large companies, say your J.P. Morgans or your Price Waterhouse Coopers, um, although those are certainly where the crown jewels are kept in terms of finances, they also have some of the best cybersecurity teams on the planet. And so the, the ability that you need, the capabilities you need as a cyber actor to intrude into those systems right. is quite high. Now, if you look at your mid-sized company that's trying to use all of its resources to compete in the market and doesn't have the same amount of resources to, to dedicate to its cybersecurity posture, or dedicating those resources may really take a hit in terms of its competitive aspect, um, those will typically be targets of a lot of cyber activity um, because, again, the capability and the ability of the actors to get into those systems, it just it doesn't require as much work as your hardened Fortune 500 company. Right. Well, that's it was funny. I was sort of looking at it from the other angle. The bigger you are, the more you have, sort of, the more you, you would be expected to protect so therefore, your your bar is higher, and if you don't meet that bar, it's probably and know, I yeah, and I believe that that's yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Jay. In the sense of again, in the Third Circus decision, they sit, they do look at the amount Wyndham spent in terms of its cybersecurity, which obviously is going to be a percentage of your budget. Um, the other thing, and this is just to be clear, large companies get thousands of attacks a day. It's not to say cyber criminals aren't going to go after large companies. It's just one of the things that we've seen is them specifically targeting those companies with less uh, mature cyber security programs. Right.
Well, I think we're going to hold the discussion here and we'll pick it up again in our next podcast. Uh, This has been Jay Levine with Ryan Graham. You can reach me at my email address is the letter J, L-E-V-I-N-E, at porterwright.com. You can reach uh, Ryan. His is R-G-R-A-H-A-M at porterwright.com. I'm on Twitter at J-A-Y-L-L-E-V-I-N-E, and you can certainly check out our uh, blog site, antitrustlawsource.com, and we're on LinkedIn as well. Uh, Look forward to uh, continuing this discussion on our next podcast. Have a great day. Porter Wright Morrison Arthur LLP offers this content for informational purposes only as a service for our clients and friends. This content is not intended as legal advice for any purpose, and you should not consider it as such. All rights reserved.